The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 12, verses 13 through 27. The word of God speaks to us like this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to him, to them, it is, this is not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, Emily. Hey, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to, to get a chance to meet you. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here. And, and let me say, too, if you're here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for being here. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, we're, we're really honored that you're here. If any question you have uh, in it, it is, is welcomed and no skepticism is going to be pushed out the door. So we're glad you're here. Um, hey, some of you know and some of you may not know that we as a church, Frontline uh, UConn is actually, uh, Chad mentioned it a while ago, are, is one of five congregations. And, and when we talk as a church about wanting to do life together and do life in community groups, that's not something we're just simply uh, asking you to do, that we actually as a church and as a leadership team are doing this with other churches. And I, I want to mention that just because sometimes we can think that maybe what's happening here is isolated to what What's happening here in Yukon, and it's not. Uh, this last week, uh, I got uh, w- was able to go down to Dallas for a couple of days to spend time with one of our one of our church networks and meet with other leaders, talking about how do we partner together to advance the mission of God. Uh, this week, we had five leaders from key uh, churches that we're in close partnership with across the country came in for meetings with our lead pastor to talk about how can we learn together, grow together, and, and engage in ministry better together, and serve other church plants better because of it. Uh, and and I want. I want to bring our attention to, to the idea that we are one congregation in, in, uh, of five congregations in Frontline by uh, highlighting my friend Rex Barrett. Rex, if you'd wave your hand. Rex Barrett is the executive pastor for Frontline Church. Uh, it, what that means is you, you, are, you experience the, so much of the, his gifts and his passion and what he does on a weekly basis, and yet many of you have never met him. Uh, as one church, we have uh, team members that serve the church as a whole, and he's one of the key leaders that leads us as a church and keeps us unified. And so, Rex, thank you. Uh, can we thank, thank Rex for... 
his contribution. Get a chance to meet him. Um, it really is an honor to have you with us. He's typically in Edmond, so we, we are really excited when we get him here. Hey, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and, and I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me as we dive into this text and see what Jesus might say to us. God, would you help us understand what in the world is going on in this passage? Uh, and, and would you work in our hearts that we wouldn't try to make this about somebody else, but that we'd actually hear what you would say to us and to our hearts today? I pray that you would do that, that you would teach us, that you would form us, that you would shape us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, I'm going to say this in earshot of my wife who says that I need to read way more fiction than I do, and she's not wrong. But when I do read fiction, I enjoy the big epics. Uh, Dune, um, uh, Lord of the Rings. I love these big epics. Uh, and, and the reason, as I think about those epics, it's really interesting that when you get into these massive like fantasy and sci-fi epics, there are these massive battles in which it feels like so much hinges on these battle lines and these armies that are warring with either lasers or swords, depending on your, your uh, novel of choice. <clears throat> but often behind the scenes in these epics, it's the... the, the, the the future of the, the conflict doesn't ride so much on what happens on the battlefield, but often what it gets whispered in the ears of leaders and rulers. As in, how often these epics shift trajectory based on the whispered lies that lead to disunity among nations. So my, the, the, the one that comes to my mind is Worm Tongue from Lord of the Rings. Wormlung, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, as, as, the, as multiple armies are gathering together to, to overthrow Sauron um, in, in the evil empire, uh, we'll just say that, in Lord of the Rings, this one key nation, Rohan, is led by a king, Theoden, who has this advisor who has been sent by the enemy to whisper lies and deceit in his ears and to lead him off course and to sow division between him and the other adversary, or him and the other armies. In other words, what he tries to do is he tries to turn Theoden against truth and turn Theoden against his allies. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, is there a better analogy for what is happening in our day and age, where we seem to be defined by, as a people, a loss of truth and pervasive division and disunity? In our day and age, there is this loss of truth that whispered in our ears are, there's your truth and my truth. There's your ideas and my ideas. That, that fundamental to our culture is this, you get to define truth for yourself, I'll define truth for myself, stay out of my business, right? And do I have to talk about disunity and division? Like, do I need to persuade you that that's a cultural problem right now? I mean, I don't know about, maybe your Facebook feed is full of, jolly, happy, peace. Mine's not. Um, maybe I just, I don't know what I need to do to get the, the nicer Facebook feed, but mine's just full of a lot of vitriol, which is why I stay out of it a lot of the time. Our, our culture and our community is so divided. Things whispering in our ears, things that are not true, and whispering divisions to set us at odds. Well, it's, this is not new, is it? This isn't like somehow in 21st century we stumbled into division and disunity. This is actually what's happening in this particular text. And I think it's really important for us to look at what's happening in these stories to help us actually better understand what's happening in our world this week, in our lives this week. You see, these two stories are, may, may seem separated, but they're actually deeply connected. 
deeply connected. Last week we talked about what, ha- what was happening when Jesus came into Jerusalem. One of the first things he did was he went to the temple. He went to the, the holy place of Israel and they, what that was happening in the temple was not what ought to have been happening in the temple. And if you want to, to dive into what was happening in that story, if you missed last week, you can go listen to the sermon online uh, about that to unpack what's happening. But in this, in this temple encounter, Jesus makes a lot of enemies because he starts restoring the temple to what it should be. He starts throwing tables of money changers and driving uh, the money changers out of the temple. And he made a lot of people very angry. And so what ends up happening is people are angry with Jesus because he is leading, he's, he's trying to lead the temple back into what it ought to be. And these leaders decide they're going to kill Jesus. We see this throughout the text. It tells us very clearly that the religious leaders set their mind on trying to get rid of Jesus. And so what they do at this point is they're going to try to trap him. You see, if the religious leaders went and grabbed Jesus right now and tried to stone him, they'd have two problems. The first problem they would have is Rome, because Rome's actually in charge of the city, and they don't like it when other people execute people. They want to handle that part. And they also can't do it because the, the, the people that love Jesus, that have, that, have, that have been shaped by his teachings, would riot. So the religious leaders can't go right at Jesus. So what do they have to do? What do they have to do? They have to trap him. And so that's what they do. Let's look at this first trap, because this first trap they set, that they try to set, is a political trap. Mark 12, verses 13 and 14. And when they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Then they asked this question, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this may seem like a kind of a harmless question. I mean, of course you're supposed to pay your taxes, right? Otherwise you get thrown in prison. This, is, this should be a done deal. But it's not quite that clean cut in this situation. You see, what had the, the, the particular tax they're talking about was a tax that had only been initiated about 25 years before when Rome had taken over Judea as its own province. So before that, there was some autonomy among, uh, among Judea and among these Jewish leaders that they now lost and Rome came in and imposed a bunch of things on the nation that they didn't want to live up under. And it led to actually a revolt and a rebellion in the country. And there were these patriots, these Jewish patriots that fought off and that, that tried to fight off the Romans but didn't. But they're still angry. And so they are embittered that they have to pay this tax And so what ends up happening right now is these religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him a question that's intended to either get Rome on his bad side or the the Jewish patriots that are his his fellow members, uh, his fellow Jewish um, people that live in Judea. They're they're trying to set a wedge issue. Does it make sense? So they're going to say, hey, do we pay the tax? If he says yes, then the the Jewish people are going to be upset. If he says no, then Rome's going to be upset. What they're trying to do is sow division. They want to catch him in a catch 22. So what does he do? He, he asks for a coin. He goes, hey, hey, bring me a denarius. They hand it to him, and he holds it up, and he goes, whose image is on this? Now, if I had one of these in my hand, you'd see it. It would, it, it would actually have an etched image of Caesar on it with his title wrapped around the coin, and it has his image on it. And so what Jesus does is he sees the trap that's set, but instead of stepping into it, he holds this up and he goes, hey, give to Caesar what Caesar's, 
And then he makes this other comment that to us may seem like a throwaway comment, but it wasn't to the Jewish people. Give to God the things that are God's. Now, every Jewish, Jewish thinker is very acquainted with Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the first, first chapter of the first book of the Bible, it tells us that God created everything, but when he created mankind, he, he made them, it says, in his image. He placed his image on them. So what Jesus does here is he says, hey, let's look at this thing that has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar. But then he turns and does something that none of them saw coming. He says, now look at that. Look at yourself that has the image of God placed on you. Give that to him. See what he did? What they are trying to do is sow disunity and they're trying to uh, uh, attack truth and he, he doesn't fall for it. Then they set a second trap. Uh, Mark uh, 12, verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say to him there is no resurrection and they ask him this question. Now this question we, we just read a second ago. It's, it's, it seems weird because in the Jewish law there was a provision that actually was meant to care for uh, the wife of a, uh, that has been widowed. Um, so if a... Um, if, if a man dies before the woman has, uh, ha- has children that are going to be able to support her in her old age, then the, the law was actually meant to protect her by saying that one of the brothers is to marry her to provide that protection. But uh, the, the scenario, they play out this hypothetical. Well, what happens if he marries seven brothers and there are no kids? Um, and and, and what, what's happening? They're trying to pit this against Jesus. It's fascinating that the Sadducees asked this about the resurrection. Why? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> they really didn't. They're not asking a question because they're like, I really wonder what would happen. They're trying to trap him, right? They're trying to undercut the law. They're trying to undercut Jesus. In essence, here's what's happening. In the first scenario, the Pharisees are trying to set Jesus at odds between the Roman Empire and the people the Jewish people, here what they're trying to do is set Jesus at odds with either the conservatives or the liberals. In other words, there were, there were religious leaders, the Pharisees, that believed in the resurrection. They believed in these truths that came out of Scripture, and the Sadducees had gone, well, I don't know, it's not really that clear, I don't really think we can believe that, and had deviated from these things. The Sadducees actually were, comprised most of the ruling class in Judea. So what they're trying to do is get Jesus to be rejected by one half of Israel. He says, is this not, verse 24, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? And then he goes on to say that God himself declares that he is, uh, I, that he is God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You see, what Jesus does in this is he doesn't get caught by either trap He refuses to step into something that's going to lead to division, and he does it by pointing to truth. In other words, in in a time in which, much like worm tongue, these leaders are trying to sow, uh, trying to reject truth and sow division, Jesus rejects both of those and points them back to truth and brings them together. They're trying to trap Jesus by rejecting truth and sowing division. I would love to say that that's never happened since then. It'd be great, right? We all live in harmony and we all believe truth. But it's not the case, is it? 
So see, we could get caught up in this particular narrative. We're, we, what's gonna end up happening? They're gonna try to trap Jesus and eventually it, we're, gonna, we're gonna get there in a couple of weeks of what does happen that leads Jesus to the cross. But I think, it, I think it, it is important for us to take a step back for just a second and ask the question, what does this text have to say to me today? In, in what ways have we rejected truth and in what ways have we sown division? both in efforts to sideline Jesus. You see, we do much the same thing. Now, if you're, if you, especially if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, but even if you're not, you, you, you live, whether you know it or not, in the Bible Belt, where a lot of people do. And, and around here, we don't like to just kind of publicly talk about denouncing Jesus, but we find subtle ways to do it all the time. We find subtle ways to trap Jesus, to sideline Jesus, or to moderate him. We're going we're gonna to take the edge off of, off of that knife because that cuts a little too deep. And we find some way to confine him or explain him away. This happens in lots of different ways. One way is that we, whether we intentionally do it or not, we reject the way of Jesus. In other words, Jesus calls us to a particular way of life. He gives us an ethic, a way of living that is for our good. But often, whether we use philosophical sophistication or whether we just use kind of reactionary, uh, reactionary street smarts, we try to push Jesus on the edge and deny his ethics. We'll read the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've ever read that, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and not kind of squirmed a little bit? Like, oh my goodness, what, what does he say there? If you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, go read it and tell me if you can read it without squirming. Because he, he makes demands on our lives that are, seem really intense. He makes demands on our sexual ethics that, that, make us set, that, that would set us at odds with the, the sexual ethic of our day. He, he makes demands on how we treat our possessions. He makes demands on how we treat not just our friends, but our enemies. He makes demands that many ways we go, that's unreasonable, Jesus, that's too far. We claim that he's too radical, or he's too naive, or his demands are too weak. If we don't just simply reject his, the way of Jesus, we will reject the authority of Jesus. Who does he think he is really? So often, and, and you... You'll hear people talk about what Jesus calls us to, the way of life he calls us to, and you'll hear words like this. That's just too oppressive. That's just too intense. That's just too much. He, he doesn't understand. And all the while, we find ourselves wanting to be in control of ourselves. We want our autonomy. We want to define what the good life is. We don't want to receive this from Jesus. So we reject his authority. We tell him this far, Jesus, and no further. In essence, we treat Christianity like a democracy. We get a vote, don't we? The reality is no, Jesus is our king. That leads to, we can reject the way of Jesus, we can reject the authority of Jesus, but we often just simply reject the identity of Jesus. We'll say things like this. If he was blank... He would blank. Now fill in the blanks. 
For some of you, you would say that if he truly was of love, if he truly loved me, then surely he would dot, dot, dot. If God, or if Jesus was powerful, truly was sovereign, then he would dot, dot, dot. What, what do you put at the end of those sentences? What are the ways in which we subtly sideline Jesus? Push him aside by denying who he really is. If he was wise, then he would dot, dot, dot. So here's my two questions for you in this room. In what ways have we dismissed the truth of Jesus? And what would it look like for us to embrace the truth of Jesus? In what ways have we done this? I'm not, I, I, I'm not interested in us looking out at the world, looking at our neighbors, or looking side by side to your spouse or your kids. That, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm asking, I'm asking us to stop and look at our own souls for just a moment and go, in what ways have I rejected or pushed away the truth of who Jesus really is in order to make my life easier? And what would it look like to step towards seeing him as he truly is? What would that look like? See, just as we have rejected truth, we also have sown division. We've rejected truth, yes, we have also sown division. Whether it's online, whether it's in our community groups, whether it's at family reunions, or whether it's just in the confines of our own mind when we think about the other we fail to pursue unity. I don't know if you know it or not, we live in a divided age and we've been sucked in by it. Each of us have been, we, we, we're so full of, a, 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 we're so immersed in a society that is so divided that it, it affects us. It affects us. We have been divided from others by lies that we've heard and we have also sought to divide. This unity isn't out there, it's in here. Our age, our culture, the one in which we swim, wants to, wants to divide us, I think, in two different ways. One is it divide, wants to divide us from Jesus himself. It wants to, to lead to a, a crowding out of his very presence in our life to pit us against Jesus. Our, our culture may say, how could you say that Jesus would say these things? And at the same time, our culture will go, you don't need to go spend time with Jesus. I'll fill, your, fill up your calendars with all kinds of other things. But what happens is the world divides us from Jesus. It pits us against him. It tries to make us dismiss him as irrelevant, as antiquated, as unreasonable. But it doesn't stop there. It wants to divide us from each other. It, it makes us, if we're not aware, if we're not attuned to what's happening, it, it, it leads us to actually set up dividing lines between brothers and sisters, between communities. It, it leads us to, to sync up with my tribe and go to war with your tribe. I think what's so fundamentally uh, 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 destructive about this is that it teaches us to see other people as enemy, not as somebody who we have a disagreement with, not as somebody who 
We may have, we may have been hurt by or hurt, but actually see them as an enemy. We reject our brother or our sister as other instead of move towards them as family. And how many ways have we allowed our, allowed our politics to divide us? In what ways have we allowed our religious uh, understandings, our theological understandings to divide us? Where have we allowed our preferences to, to define us? I just want to be with people like me. I just want to hang out with people that are cool like me. I just want to hang out with people that make me feel good. And we sideline and push away and distance ourselves and, 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 and we, we end up folding in on ourselves instead of embracing those that God has put us around. Can I just say very, very clearly, if you're in this church, you're not here by accident. God has brought you into this family to be family. And he's also created, he creates a family here that, that creates, that, that gives a different image of what life, what communal life can look like to, the, to those around us. Here's my hope and here's my prayer that Yukon would look at what happens at Frontline Yukon and go, I don't understand what's going on there, but, but that smells like Jesus. That we would be unified in such a way that the world would take notice. So here's my question. In what ways are we aware of the worm, to- worm tongues around us? those voices that whisper in our ears, that poison our minds and poison our hearts with false truths and with division? In what ways have we succumbed to the voices around us that say, no, really, you can't be unified with that person. You disagree on X, Y, or Z. Or that says, no, did Jesus really say? Surely, surely you misunderstood him. What are the, what are the, who are the worm tongues whispering in our ears that we need to recognize? If we come back to this passage in Mark, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating for a couple of different points. It's fascinating because um, Jesus just so, like, uh, it, it's like Michael Jordan cutting the lane with three seconds to go and you're down by one. Like, and if you haven't watched any old Michael Jordan videos, do yourself a ser- some service and go do this. He just, he, he slices and dices the, the defense on the way to the rim in ways that just kind of defy, um, like you just can't even imagine something better than that. And what Jesus does here is he sees this trap coming and he's not gonna fall for it. And he does things that you, that you just, all of us would kind of scratch our head going, I, don't, I, I wouldn't have responded that way. That's because he's wise and he was aware of what was happening. But, but there's something more profound going on here. You see, the, the religious leaders are doing everything they can to kill Jesus. They see him as their enemy and they're here to kill him. What we know when we back up in Mark and what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is that Jesus was going to Jerusalem knowing he was going to die. At the very same time, the religious leaders are set out to kill Jesus as an enemy. He walks into Jerusalem as a sacrifice himself in order to die for them. When they come to kill him, he walks willingly to die. That at the very 
at the very same place. When they approach him as an enemy, he approaches them as friends. Can we take a second and just sit in the absurdity of that? That God in his love, in Jesus, so loved his enemies that he would willingly walk into a trap in order to be killed, that he might save them. That he might open up the way of salvation for them. Those religious leaders did not deserve Jesus to die in order to cover their sins. And we don't deserve it either. That Jesus would in the midst of this trap, step through it only to be crucified a couple of days later. He did that in order to forgive us for all the ways in which we have bought into the lie and have sown disunity and division. For all the ways in which we have rejected Jesus and rejected one another, Jesus comes and dies in order to bring unity, to bring us together to one another, but to bring us to him, to open up the way of life. And that's his offer to us today. His offer is a, is a way of truth, and his offer is a way of unity. But that only happens as we're united with him. The Bible calls us that in the midst of, our, in the midst of uh, all the things going in on our, our heart and our soul where we want to push him away, the text calls us to come near to him, to trust him. And where we feel whispered in our ears these, these lies that tell us to distance yourself from Jesus, he says, to all who would draw near, come to me with your heavy burdens and I will give you rest. So this morning, I hope that we won't bounce out of here having thought that was an interesting history lesson in Mark, but actually hear the call of this text towards truth and towards unity. And in the midst of that, to reckon directly with the fact that the one who these religious leaders came to die, or came to kill, he came to die, but he came to die for us, that we might have life. Let's pray.